Well, we've, we've journeyed all the way to Acts chapter 23. How many chapters are in the book of Acts? 28. How many years, roughly, does this book cover in our movement's history? About 30, give or take. Close to the number of chapters that are present. Now, a theme of this book so far has been things like, what about the Gentiles? Do Gentiles have a place in the kingdom? If so, what do they got to do to get there? You know, do Gentiles have to convert to Judaism to have that place? Uh, you know, another theme has been promoting Paul and, and validating Paul's apostleship, right? Another theme you could look at, which I haven't discussed up until now, is from Jerusalem to Rome. Think about that. Luke is writing a historical account of how the gospel was centered and hunkered down in Jerusalem and then went to Rome and then went crazy and spread like a wildfire in the Roman world. You can look at the book of, of Acts like that, from Jerusalem to Rome. Okay, But this right here is a 36-acre plateau on what we call Mount Moriah. Okay, Mount Moriah. And on this plateau sat the center of the universe, and some uh, historians will call it, and this might be actually in rabbinic literature, they call it the navel of the world. The navel of the world. The center of the universe for every religious Jew and, and, and God-fearer in the world is right here on this 36-acre plateau. This is, of course, the Beit HaMikdash, the holy temple, the house of God, right? And this is what it looked like, or what we think it looked like in the first century. Um, all the pictures were destroyed in a fire, so we don't know for sure. But this is a model, and this is actually a photograph of a model, okay? This is a model, I think it's a half-acre model, in the Jerusalem uh, Museum, the, the, uh, the museum that's there in, in Jerusalem. Oh, thank you. On Mount Scopus, I think it is. But you can go and you can walk around this half-acre model and look at it. But it's massive, right? And uh, you can see here, let me, let me kind of orient you, but up here, that is west. Down here, or this way towards us, is east, okay? So this would be south, and that would be north, all right? And let me kind of show you some of the, the main, the main uh, buildings here. This plateau was expanded and created by King Herod, okay? The great architect. And the temple itself was built by Solomon, but expanded upon. This temple mount was built by Solomon, but expanded upon by Herod. This is Solomon's colonnade that goes around here. Solomon's colonnade. And this has come up time and time again in the book of Acts. This is where we used to hang out on the Temple Mount. And then, of course, over here to the north and the west, we have the Antonia Fortress. These are barracks for what we think is the 10th Legion of the Roman Army. And it probably changed hands at times. But there's probably upwards of several hundred to a thousand Roman soldiers living right there. And you could stand on that precipice and look down and see the altar. That really bothered the Jewish leaders at the time. And of course, we have the temple itself. So you have a fortress that is the city of Jerusalem with all these walls going around the city of Jerusalem. Then you have a fortress that is the temple mount itself. And then you have a fortress that is the temple itself. And all of these were like three layers of very impenetrable tactical fortresses. So in the temple, of course, you have the Nicanor Gate. And you have the court of the women. First of all, let me say that this is the court of the Gentiles out here. And there was a three-foot wall that went around that called the Soreg. And if you were a Gentile, you could not pass that wall. Right? They don't want Gentiles and pagans to come in and, and defile this area up here. Which is interesting that you could go anywhere else on the Temple Mount. But you would have to pass off your offering to someone else. And then um, 
about right here is a big chamber, a big room called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone. The Chamber of the Hewn Stone was very important because that's where the highest court of Israel convened, a court called the Sanhedrin. Okay, and this is what it may have looked like in the Chamber of the Hewn Stone. Anybody remember how many people sat on the Sanhedrin? There were 70 and then plus one, which was the high priest as he presided over the Sanhedrin. They were the highest court in the land, in the, in the, the land of Israel, Judea. And you would have like an accuser, and you would maybe have some secretaries sitting out here, and then you would have students who are next in line to be members of the Sanhedrin sitting out in the seating and watching and learning. And uh, does any member of the two main groups that comprise, the two religious sects that comprise the Sanhedrin? Yeah, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, we get the word from the, the Hebrew word parushim, or a parush. A parush was someone who developed after the uh, Babylonian exile. And they, um, they realized, okay, there's no temple, there's, we're not even in our land. What do we do while we're in exile? Let's be as obedient and as holy as possible in every respect of our lives. Let's be parush. Parush means to be separated, to be, to be set apart. And the parushim are the separated ones. It's plural. Parushim, okay? And so they were so devoted on learning Torah law, deciphering it, applying it to their lives, and then spreading that to other Jews so that they could then be obedient to the, to the Torah and then that then maybe they would gain back access back into the land of Israel. And so where would they meet and where would they discuss and learn topics of Torah and halacha? They would meet in a synagogian synagogue, okay? It's just a Greek word for a place of gathering, an assembly hall. And they would meet there, they would read the Torah, they would discuss it, they would answer questions about it. And so the other group were the, the Sadukim, or the Sadducees, as we kind of, it's like Hellenized version of Sadukim. The Sadukim named themselves after the high priest that was the high priest during the times of uh, uh, David and Saul, Sadok, okay? And they're like the they're, they trace their lineage back to him. And Sedukim are, they mean the righteous ones. But there is a big theological difference between those, big rift between those two groups of people. And many of you are already aware of that. Here's what the Temple Mount looks like today. Many of you have been to this place. Uh, and you can see, let me back up here and show you. This is the um, southeast corner here, Solomon's Colonnade. And their southern steps are right out here as you're approaching you would approach the southern steps and come up through like a, almost like a tunnel here and exit onto the Temple Mount. And here it is, again, modern times. You, you can still actually walk the... Oh, I'm jumping ahead here. You can still walk the southern steps right here. You just can't get up onto the Temple Complex. There's only a couple entrances onto the Temple Mount itself. And if you're a non-Muslim, you can only get up there in between the five daily prayer times. If you're a Muslim, you can go up there anytime. You can pray anytime. If you're a Jew or a Christian and you get caught praying on the Temple Mount, you will be banned the rest of your life from going up onto the Temple Mount. All right? Very, very... Uh, but, but Jews are allowed up there as of right now. And right here we have the um, Alaska Mosque. This is a mosque. And then this is the shrine. It's called the, the uh, Dome of the Rock because it sits over top of the rock that Muslims believe the Muhammad ascended from. And they think that it still, they still has his footprints. And many people believe that it's actually perhaps where the, the Ark of the Covenant sat. Um, but that's, that's uh, the Temple Mount right now. Do you think this is politically tense right now? Of course it is, yeah. Of course, it's the holiest site in all of the Jewish faith, and I would say the Christian faith as well, uh, depending on what sect of Christianity, but the third holiest site in, in Islam. 
You'll notice in this picture, this is called the Eastern Gate. And this is the gate that the high priest would enter and exit through during the, during the, uh, the sacrifice of the red heifer. And he would uh, go out into the Mount of Olives. It's the only sacrifice that was issued and would be carried out outside of the temple complex. He would go out to the top of the Mount of Olives, which we're kind of standing on right now and looking down on. And then he would complete the red heifer sacrifice up there. And then he would take the ashes and go back into the, the uh, temple mount. Well, the Eastern Gate, and it's also theorized in rabbinic literature and prophetic apocalyptic rabbinic literature, that the Mashiach, when he comes, he will enter through Jerusalem through that gate. So the, the Muslims picking up on this decided, you know, it might be best to go ahead and just put a cemetery in front of the Eastern Gate here. So all this that you see is a Muslim cemetery. And they did that so as kind of like a, a spit in the face to, to Jews and Christians, like, you know, okay, your Mashiach, when he comes, your Messiah, when he comes, he's going to have to defile himself ritually by walking through a cemetery and make himself unable to go up onto the Temple Mount. So, very, very tense, right? Yeah. But this is a, um, an excerpt here I, I pulled out. The, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were in a constant conflict with each other, not only over numerous details of ritual and the Torah, but most importantly over the content and the extent of God's revelation to the Jewish people. The Sadducees refused to go beyond the written Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And thus, unlike the Pharisees, they denied the immortality of the soul, the bodily resurrection after, uh, after death, and according to Acts 23, the existence of angelic spirits. So the Sadducees, they, they like the best and most equivalent thing I can come up with now are like the sect of the Karaites. Have you ever heard of Karaite Jew Jews? Yeah, they, they, they're not completely in alignment with that, but they believe in just the first five books of the Bible and nothing else. And uh, whereas the Pharisees, um, they, they believe in, uh, 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 let me see where, by contrast, the Pharisees revered the Torah but further claimed that the oral tradition was part, of the, part and parcel of Mosaic law. Because of their strict adherence to the written law, the Sadducees acted severely in cases involving the death penalty. And they interpreted literally the Mosaic principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And also, it, what we might add about the Pharisees is that they believed in the revelation to the prophets. Okay, So a Sadducee would look at the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, you know, all these, Joel, Amos, you know, and they would say, no, that's not, that's not God's revelation. Whereas a Pharisee would say, yes, that's revelation to the Jewish people from God. Okay, big difference. And a lot of, lot of tension there for sure. So as we delve into Acts 23, I hope that kind of gives you a refresher on the different key players that we see here. So open your Bible to Acts 23 and let's read and talk and learn together here. Where do we leave off last week? Paul was about to be ripped to shreds by a group of, of, of a mob, basically. He said all in Jerusalem was in an uproar over Paul. He started talking to this crowd in Hebrew. And uh, he said, you know, I, I came across Yeshua on the road to Damascus. He revealed himself to me. And then uh, he called me. I was healed of my blindness and so on and so forth. And then it says, remember, we talked about the bridge too far. He says, and then he told me to go to the Gentiles and take this message to the Gentiles. And then it said that they all, they all just got triggered, right? As the kids say these days. And they started um, saying, seize him. This man should not live. Wipe him off the earth, right? And the commander, uh, Cla uh, Claudius Lysias, swoops down and grabs Paul and apprehends him. He was about to flog him and, and scourge him with a whip. And then Paul reveals the fact that he's a Roman citizen. 
And, uh, and then, yeah, it goes from there. And so then he's locked up and he's being protected under Roman custody. And uh, the, the, the commander, the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, remember he convenes the Sanhedrin. He orders them to come together, right? Which speaks of his authority over the Sanhedrin even. He orders them to come together and he's like, we're going to calm down. I want to hear everything. I want to observe what this guy has to say. I want to hear what charges you have against this man, Paul. And we'll go from there. We'll kind of adjudicate from there. Because if you remember, uh, the, people of, the, uh, the people of Judea, they could not, they could not uh, execute a, a member of their own nation. The Romans took that privilege away from them. Even though the Torah allowed for that, the Romans said, no, you can't do that. The only time that you can ever do that is if a non-Jew crosses the Soreg right here. Then, fine, we'll let you kill them. <laughs> but this is a matter of capital punishment according to the Jewish onlookers. They're saying, kill this man. Right? And so the Roman, he's saying, well, we got a Roman citizen. You can't kill him, first of all. That's illegal according to Roman law. We need to figure out what's going on here. Good for him, right? So he's, he's seeking justice for Paul. Verse uh, Chapter 23, you there? It says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin, at them. And he says, brothers, I have been discharging my obligations to God with a perfectly clear conscience right up to today. Let's pause there and because you just might gloss over that and say, well, that's nothing fancy about it. But look, go with me to Acts 4 real quick. Flip back to Acts 4. The fact that he is greeting these, this high court of Israel as brothers is interesting to me because if you remember, Peter once stood before the Sanhedrin and he too had to give, he too had to give a defense of the charges. Go back to Acts chapter 4. You guys there? I'm looking for the verse. I didn't mark the verse. If you see where he addresses the uh, Sanhedrin, just shout out the verse. Verse 8, thank you. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders. <laughs> see, that was a more formal way of addressing, a more respectful way of addressing the Sanhedrin. Why does Paul say Brothers. He's speaking to his peers here. He's speaking to people that were his brothers, but also that's uh, theorized, and we're going to talk more about this in Acts chapter 26, that Paul at some point in his life sat on the Sanhedrin. And these were like his peers. These were his equals. And I'll, I'll share with you some evidence of that. But if you go to Acts chapter 26 real quick, I'm going to spoil just a little bit. Go to Acts 26 verse 19. Acts 26 19. You remember um, Acts 26... No, I'm sorry, Acts 26.9. Acts 26.9. He said, I used to think it was my duty to do all that I could to combat the name of Yeshua from Nazareth. And in Jerusalem, I did so. Paul's talking here. He says, after receiving authority from the head priest, I myself threw many of God's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now, who gets to cast votes in the court of Israel? The Sanhedrin. So people would say that's maybe a piece of evidence there. It speaks of what, as, as uh, right before the martyrdom of, of Stephen that Paul is actually sitting on the Sanhedrin. We don't know for sure, but I'm going to share with you some evidence when we get to Acts 26. One verse 2. But the Kohen Gadol, Hananiah, or your Bibles might say uh, Ananias. Um, Ananias ordered those standing near him to strike him on the mouth. Now let's pause there. Ananias was a corrupt high priest. Don't confuse him with the Annas 
from earlier, nor the Caiaphas from earlier than that, okay? Different guy. And don't confuse him with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Ananias. It's just a very common name, Hananiah, okay? Or Hananiah. So he's a very corrupt, and Josephus actually writes about this high priest and say that he would actually siphon off a piece of the tithes as people were giving their tithes and, and money to the temple, that he would actually use that money to bribe Roman officials to show him favor. And he was a violent man, a perverted man. But you can see here that he strikes Paul. Now, Paul says to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Will you sit there judging me according to the Torah, yet in violation of the Torah, order me to be struck? See, Paul is a masterful Torah scholar. Now, why do you think he calls him a whitewashed wall? Because here it says that the Kohen Gadol was surprised. It says, the Kohen Gadol of God, that you're insulting. And then Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the Kohen Gadol. For it says in the Torah, you're not to speak disparagingly of a ruler of your people. So we have a couple different hy hypotheses here. Because, you know, the Kohen Gadol, he's, he's like the top guy in all of the Jewish nation. Why did Paul not recognize him as such? Some people might say, well, maybe because he wasn't wearing his ritual vestments and, you know, he just looked different. Maybe he was just wearing more plain clothes because this was, was, this was like an impromptu court session. Some people say, well, maybe, um, you know, it had been 20 years since Paul had been in Jerusalem at this point. That could be it. And maybe he just aged over 20 years. Some people say, well, maybe this speaks to the theory that Paul had bad eyesight. And he's squinting and he can't make out who it is that hits him. You know, he writes at the end of Galatians, look at my large letters that I'm writing with, right? And he, he talks about how he maybe he has a, um, an impediment that he wants the believers to pray for. Some people uh, hypothesize that maybe Paul has bad eyesight. The third theory, and I like this theory, is that Paul knows he's the high priest, but is speaking ironically when he says, I didn't know that this was the high priest. You know, I know that I should not speak disparagingly of my ruler. So in other words, he's saying, this man is not acting like, I know he's the high priest, but he's certainly not acting like it. You see, I like that theory. But we can't really prove one way or the other. And we've got a question in the back. Yeah. 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 So he's maybe making a slight, like kind of like a little bit of a dig here. And Paul is saying, like, you know, um, <laughs> you're judging me according to the Torah that you're not even keeping. And Paul's like, I will keep, I will keep it. But you know, it's a it's a good lesson here for us too. You know, whether or not he really knows that this is the oh, let me back up though and say, here's another reason why I like the third theory that Paul is speaking ironically and kind of making a slight at the high priest. When he calls him a whitewashed tomb, that saying is not gonna fall on deaf ears. He knows exactly what he's saying. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel 13. And this is another arrow in my quiver to think that he's, he's speaking ironically here. He knows he's the high priest. Go to Ezekiel 13. I'm sorry? Sarcasm. Yeah, exactly. Go to Ezekiel 13. Ezekiel 13, verse 9. Ezekiel 13, 9. 
He says, God speaking here to Ezekiel, My hand will be against the prophets who have futile visions and produce false divinations. They will not be allowed into the council of my people or be written in the register of the house of Israel or enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Adonai your God. They deserve this because they have, uh, they have led my people astray by saying there is peace when there is no peace. If someone builds a wall without mortar, they plaster it with whitewash to make it look and appear to be strong. Tell these whitewashers, these plasterers, that a cloud burst is coming with huge hailstones and a gale force winds, and that wall will fall down. Then people will ask you, where is the whitewash you used for this wall? Therefore, the Lord our God says, in my rage, I will cause gale force winds to break out. And in my anger will come a cloudburst with huge hailstones to consume it in fury. In fury. So Paul says, God will strike you. And what does he call him? A whitewashed wall. Paul knew exactly what he was saying, I believe. And the high priest knew exactly what passage he's citing there. I don't think that fell on deaf ears. Verse 6. But knowing that one part of the Sanhedrin consisted of Sadducees, Sadukim, remember they don't believe in extra-biblical stuff, angelic spirits, immortality of the soul, and the other group were the Parushim, the Pharisees, Paul shouted, Brothers, I myself am a Parush, and the son of Parushim. And it is concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am being tried today. So, Paul is being respectful to their authority, but he finds a way. He's like, he's like, as Yeshua says, innocent as a dove and wise as a serpent. He finds a way to divide. He plays their own game. See what I'm saying? And when the crowd, when he, when he said this, an argument arose between the Proshim and the Sadukim, and the crowd was divided. For the Sadukim deny the resurrection and the existence of angels and spirits, whereas the Proshim acknowledged both. So there was a great uproar. And with some of the Torah teachers who were on the side of the perishim standing up and joining in, they said, we didn't find anything wrong with this man. If a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, what of it? The dispute became so violent that the commander, this is the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, fearing that Saul would be torn apart by them, ordered the soldiers to go down, take him by force, and bring him back into the barracks. So he's being imprisoned again here. Right? So you notice the theme that's developing. Luke is trying to show us, watch for this theme, that there is violence, there's mob rule, there is hatred, there's un, unbased uh, uh, hatred and, and anger towards Paul on the side of the Sanhedrin. But what are the, how, does the Rome, how does the Roman army act? They're obedient, they're swift, they look for, they look for a fair trial of Paul. Right? Luke is trying to draw a contrast between the two. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for just as you have borne a faithful witness to me in Jerusalem, so now you'll go to Rome. All right? Now, this is likely the same prison that Peter sat in back in Acts chapter 4. Do you remember that? Peter was locked up. And I bring that up because Peter, remember in the middle of the night, what happened? The gates were thrown open and Peter walked free. And I bring that up to say, sadly, that's not going to happen here for Paul. 
that God is working something together and weaving something together that is to the disadvantage of Paul, but to the great advantage of the message of the gospel. And he may do that in your life as well. You may see other people who are like, they just got off and just walked, right? Or they just got that promotion. Or they, all their kids are healthy. Or their marriage works out, right? And then you're like, man, why did I get dealt this hand of cards here? What is, why is all this going on in my family? I just want to be like that perfect family. It's because he may be working it together to further the advance of his kingdom somehow. And you might not find out 5, 10, 20 years down the road. But it, it's interesting because Yeshua appears to Paul five times in the book of Acts. And in every time that he appears to him, it's a crisis. And in every time there's this crisis, and all five times, Yeshua gives him further clarification. I need you to do this. And then he speaks words of encouragement to him. Verse 12. The next day, some of the Judeans formed a conspiracy. They took an oath saying they would never eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Does that sound very just to you? Are they wanting all the evidence and they, are they trusting the decision of the high court? No, they're taking the law into their own hands, aren't they? They're like vigilantes. More than 40 were involved in this plot. They went to the head priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed this Paul. What are you to do? What you are to do is to make it appear to the commander that you and the Sanhedrin want to get more accurate information about Saul's case so that he will bring him down to you while we, for our part, are prepared to kill him before he even gets here. There's so much corruption going on. Do you see all that? It's so sad. Verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister. Wait a second. Paul has a sister? Yeah, we don't know anything about her. She isn't named anywhere. And she has a son. But somehow he hears about these plans. So maybe he's in the proximity of the court. Maybe he's in the room. Maybe he's training to be one of those members of the Sanhedrin. We don't know, but he's there. He's, they're living in Jerusalem. He finds out about this ambush. And he went into the barracks and he told Paul. Paul called one of the officers and said, Take this man up to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the commander and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. You see how the Romans repetitively, they, they want to hear everything. They want to they make good, wise decisions here. Verse 19, the commander took him by the hand and led him aside privately and asked, what is it you have to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you tomorrow to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin on the pretext that they want to investigate the case more thoroughly. But don't let yourself be talked into it, because there are more than 40 men lying in wait for him. They have taken an oath neither to eat nor drink until they kill him. And they are ready now, only waiting for you to give your consent to their request. So the commander let the young man go, cautioning him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he summoned two of the captains and said, go get 200 infantrymen ready to leave for Caesarea, which is six... 65 miles north and west. You can see it on the map there. Get them ready at 9 o'clock tonight. And 70 mounted cavalry and 200 spearmen. That's 470 soldiers, Roman soldiers. 
Think about that. Now, Paul is likely an, an aging man here. Potentially uh, nearsighted, can't see very well, has no combat experience. He's, not, he's a Torah scholar, right? He's not someone that you would typically assign 470 men to guard. Maybe like two, right? As you're traveling to Caesarea, there's very, very low flight risk with Paul. It's not like he's going to beat up these two Roman soldiers and go berserk, right? Very unlikely. 470 men, though, to guard Paul from people who hate Paul. Think about that. That's crazy, right? I don't know if we have 470 secret servicemen guarding the president of the United States of America at any given moment, right? Yeah, Lisa, I see your hand up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She said, for those who couldn't hear, there would be a hundred for every one man who took the vow, and then maybe one for uh, every member of the Sanhedrin as well. But yeah, that's interesting. They make it, yeah. Well, just in guerrilla warfare, you assume you need seven to ten troops to take on mm. each irregular. Yeah. So. Yeah. He said, in guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare, it's assumed that you would need a seven to one ratio to take on seven to 10 uh, to one ratio to take on a guerrilla guerrilla fighter, an insurrectionist. So verse 24, he said to them also, provide replacements for Paul's horse when it gets tired and bring him through safely to Felix, the governor. Do you guys see, I know I keep reiterating this. Do you see the concern the Romans have for Paul to be safe and to get a fair trial? And you see the lack of concern the Sanhedrin and his own brethren have for that? And it says in verse 25, and the commander wrote the following letter. He said, from Claudius Lysias. Now Claudius Lysias, we know he's a Roman commander, probably commands around a thousand troops in the Antonia Fortress. We know also that he bought his citizenship. Remember when he says that to Paul? You, you were born a citizen? I bought mine a large sum, uh, sum of money, uh, a sizable sum of money. So here we see his name, Claudius. is probably named after the Roman emperor, Claudius. So maybe he bought his citizenship while, while Rome was being ruled by Claudius, and he named his, himself, his Roman name, Claudius, the, you know, the, the, the um, grateful and, and uh, um, you know, um, trying to think of the word. Uh, yeah, the gracious emperor Claudius. And then his Greek name, Lysias, is a good Greek name. So he says to his excellency, Governor Felix. Now, Governor Felix is the Roman procurator that was, that was uh, put there and appointed by the Roman government. He's a civilian. He's not a Roman uh, army. He's not, a, he's not a, a soldier. He's a civilian that was put there, and he's based out of Caesarea. And I have to remind you guys that in Caesarea, this is the governmental seat of the Roman occupation, okay? This would be like the Bagram Air Base for Afghanistan. But Jerusalem is the religious capital of the religious Jews living in the land of Judea. But Caesarea is the Roman capital, the governmental capital. So that's why Felix is there. He says, greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Judeans and it was about to be killed by them. When I came on the scene with my troops and I rescued him, after learning he was a Roman citizen, notice he leaves out the part I was about to 
flog him, right? After learning he was a Roman citizen, I wanted to understand exactly what they were charging him with. So I brought him down to their Sanhedrin. Bad idea. <laughs> I found that he was charged in some connection with questions about their law, but that there was no charge deserving death or prison. But when I was informed of the plot against the man, I immediately sent him to you and also ordered his accusers to state their case against him before you. You see the care and the concern for the judicial process here? The soldiers following their orders took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris, then returned to the barracks after leaving the cavalry to go on with him. The cavalry took him to Caesarea, delivered the letter to the governor, and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. On hearing he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a full hearing after your accusers have also arrived and ordered him to be kept under guard in Herod's headquarters. So that's the end of chapter 23. And I want to go through some lessons that I've extrapolated from this. And number one, I believe Luke is drawing a comparison of Roman justice and the perversion of the Jewish Sanhedrin sense of justice, or the lack thereof, I should say, at this time. And this is problematic to me because if you go with me real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, let's look into the Torah and what the Torah says the people of Israel should be like. Deuteronomy chapter 4. In verse 5, Deuteronomy 4, 5. Devarim 4, 5. Look, I have taught you laws and rulings. Speaking to the people of Israel, right? Just as the Lord my God ordered me, so that you can behave accordingly in the land where you are going in order to take possession of it. Therefore, observe them and follow them. For then all peoples will see you as having wisdom and understanding. And when they hear of all these laws, they will say, This great nation is surely a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God as close to them as the Lord our God is whenever we call on Him? You see the purpose of the Torah? It's to make the other nations jealous in a way to elevate the nation of Israel's justice and morality and put them on a pedestal. And so all the other nations will look at them and say, wow, that is a just nation, right? Go with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, verse 19. Deuteronomy 16, 19. You are not to distort justice, justice or show favoritism, and you are not to accept a bribe. For a gift blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of even the upright. Justice, and only justice, you must pursue so that you will live and inherit the land that Adonai your God is giving you. So in this chapter... Oddly enough, we find Rome acting more justly than the Jewish high court. The people who are to be 
on a pedestal and looked at by all the nations surrounding her as a just nation. How do you think they're doing at that so far? Not very well. So God says, hey, that's a condition for being in my land. You act justly. You don't pervert justice. So if, if justice has been perverted, what's the repercussion? Goodbye. You can't be in my land any longer. And it raised the question for me, what do we do when the purveyors of justice, the people who are supposed to be the standard bearers, the torch bearers of justice, what do we do when they behave unjustly? What did Paul do? He reminded them of the standard, didn't he? He acted justly, and he kind of kept his head down. I think we should do the same. Pray for our leaders, that they understand justice, they fear the Lord. We should act justly, and we should keep our head down. Because God's judgment it seems to be the thing that tips the scales for God. is when people who say, ah, we're just, we have just laws, we will keep justice in the land. When they get perverted, and they lie to themselves, and, and they take bribes, there's none of that going on in the U.S. right now, right? No bribes going on. When they start accepting bribes and perverting justice, it seems like that tips the scales. Keep your head down. Trust in God's providence for your life. Second of all, God providentially, through this story, is going to weave people, events, and circumstances together in a way that brings him glory and furthers his kingdom. And you might be thinking and going through some stuff in your life or have gone through some stuff in life. God will use that to his glory if you allow him. I promise you. All right? I promise you. If you allow him. And then lastly, nothing brings God's judgment more swiftly than when those who are the purveyors of justice pervert it. I already said that, right? Now, you remember this painting here. This is July 4, 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. What a great opportunity, right? You remember in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson says the all-too-familiar words, the beautiful words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, right? And are endowed by their, oh, but not the federal government? Where do our rights come from? Our creator. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, meaning they cannot ever be taken away. And of these are the pursuit of what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. What a great opportunity, right? That here, the precipice of a, of a nation being birthed out of tyranny, has the opportunity to say, okay, guys, we recognize we have a creator, though we don't all agree, the founders don't agree on who that creator is and how to worship the creator and all, whatever. But we have a creator. The creator has given us rights and he has decided that all men are equal. What a great opportunity. And I always say, sadly, there are three great injustices in our nation, in our nation's history, that could have been avoided from this point forward, but we chose not to. Number one, the institution and the permitting of slavery in our nation. A great evil and injustice. Apparently, all men are not created equal. 
right? Number two, the treatment of indigenous people in the United States of America. What became the United States of America. All right, number three, abortion. Abortion. Now we're confused and, and wondering over what is a human. You ever imagine we get to that point in our nation where we're like, well, I mean, could we terminate as long as the head is still in the birth canal? Can we take a life? Can you, could you ever have fathomed we would get to that point? And here we are 50 years later, and millions of babies later, we're looking at as probably as early as Monday getting a, a potential reversal of that decision. Don't let people lie to you and say that this is, a, this is a right that was given by the Supreme Court and is now being taken away, and that's the first time that's ever happened. First of all, it's not a right to murder, right? Because all men are created equal. Second of all, that has happened to be four, all right? All the laws pertaining to segregation in the United States of America, those were rights, quote unquote. Unjust laws and rights, but through the Supreme Court, praise God, they were undone, okay? Brown versus Board of Education, the list goes on, okay? The desegregating of buses, desegregating of schools, the Supreme Court has the ability and the right to do that. They are the highest court in the United States of America. So when they say something is unjust, we as citizens should say, ah, I trust your decision. I trust the rule of law. And maybe down the road that might change, I don't know. But I trust the rule of law in here. The opposite of that is mob rule, right? And you see here on the Supreme Court uh, Justice Building here in Washington, D.C., which in a couple weeks will be leading worship, you know, not far from that. <laughs> Within a mile of that building will be leading worship, which is amazing. But you see here the words justice, justice, the guardian of liberty. Justice is the guardian of liberty. And who's at the center of this? It's a picture of, it's a carving of Moses holding the Ten Commandments. And I, you know, have to be completely transparent. This is uh, Confucius and Salome, the, the Athenian poet. And, uh, but at the centerpiece is Moses and the Ten Commandments, meaning that our nation is governed by great people and on Judeo-Christian principles, including those given at Mount Sinai. You see what I'm saying? And so the nine Supreme Court justices that go into that building and meet, what they're saying is we are governed and we are influenced in a way by these great thinker philosophers and by the Torah itself. That's where we get our sense of justice from and it distills down and that's how we govern ourselves. That to us is justice. Now, pray for these folks because like I said, we are at very historical. It's probably going to be Monday. We don't know for sure. But for those who don't know, you're like, I have no idea what's going on. Why are we all praying for the Supreme Court? Do you know this? Sam, Sam Alito is right here, created an opinion draft and drafted this opinion, which, which basically proposed the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the decision and kicking it back and the issue of abortion, whether or not it's legal, kicking it back to the 50 states for them to make up their minds on it. And then there's, I've heard between 13 to 26 states that will automatically ban abortion if that happens. But they have trigger laws on the books. Well, he created this uh, a draft of an opinion. And it seems like he's got the majority of nine justices on his side. It's a very lengthy process they go through. 
Um, they seek a lot of legal counsel themselves when they're creating this draft. And they came together. Well, they shared this draft. Guess what? One of the justices or their aides or their clerks or whatever did a very unprecedented thing that has probably never happened in the history of the Supreme Court and the history of our nation, and that is they leaked it to the press. Why? They did it because they know that this is going to be a divisive issue. And they know that if they can leak it to the press, the very loud, boisterous, very um, violent, thank you, mob that supports the slaughter of innocent people will threaten them. Do you see how evil of a thing that was? I'm going to leak this because I give up on the rule of law. I don't want it to happen the way that it should happen and it was laid out by our founders. In other words, that's bogus to me. I'm going to go and give fodder, cannon fodder and ammunition to the mob. That's sad. And if that doesn't crush you, I don't know what will. Our republic is quickly slipping out of our hands. The rule of law is slipping out of our hands. It's ironic that Bill, Mayer, Bill uh, Maher condemned protest, violent protest, which this headline left out, violent protest outside the home of these Supreme Court justices. Bill Maher says, guys, that is not appropriate. Bill Maher. Remember the story of Acts 23? The Romans are like, you guys are acting a little bit crazy. This is, this is you guys should be the purveyors of justice. And look, we're going to do it better than you. Us pagan Romans who don't know or fear your God? That is embarrassing. An HBO star correcting the mob. And if this picture doesn't further crush you and sadden you, the state of our nation, never before has there been, I don't know, a seven or eight foot tall unscalable fence with Constantina wire wrapped around the top of it, surrounding the highest court in our nation. I, I was sitting there reading one article today, and they, they spun it like this. Oh, the Supreme Court, they want, they want protection, but they're not going to give and grant the same protection to pregnant women. Why in the world did they erect a fence around this building? Because they have received, the, the Department of Homeland Security has received countless threats and have observed countless threats on social media, in person, uh, the, the safety, on the safety and the life of our Supreme Court justices. And they know that the decision is coming up probably this coming week. Sadly, they have to take precautionary measures and erect a fence around this building. Because they feel strongly enough that there might be people who will try to disrupt that rule of law process. If that doesn't really break your heart for our nation, I don't know what will. This has never happened before. This is a sad photo, is it not? So when I say pray for these folks, I mean it. Pray for our nation. Pray for the rule of law. Because Justice is the guardian of liberty. And um, let me close in prayer and then we'll go to questions and answers. Abba Father, I thank you 
for your sense of justice. And I pray that these Supreme Court justices will have courage to stand on their principles and that your will will be done. Pray for the safety of our nation and the solidarity and the unity of our nation. We are so richly blessed. May the sins that we've committed in our past be forgiven. And may we be people who are known to be people of justice. I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. You know, a, a point I'll add regarding Paul. I've heard it said that a good leader has a compass in their head and a magnet in their heart. A good leader has a compass in their head and a magnet in their heart. What does that mean as it pertains to Paul? It means a good leader has vision, knows where he's going. And it's like, I want, I, I see the end, so to speak, okay? Paul knows I've got to share the gospel. Paul knows eventually I've got to get to Rome. The gospel's got to go to Rome. Paul has that vision. He has that compass. He has direction. And Yeshua keeps speaking to him and feeding that and giving it more clarity. And what is the magnet in his heart? He keeps being magnetized back to his own people. You see that even up to the end of his ministry, Paul desires nothing more. He says, for my own people, it'll be like a resurrection of the dead when they believe. That's always been on his heart. The city of Jerusalem, the temple, the house of God, it's like a magnet on his heart. Paul is a phenomenal leader with a compass in his head and a magnet in his heart. But do you guys have any questions or comments for me? Yeah, Suzanne. Yeah. Yeah, very good point. For those who couldn't hear, Suzanne said if you back up a little bit in Ezekiel 13 from where we started reading, it's it's a warning to those who who pervert uh, and obstruct the way of the righteous. Yeah, and that's exactly what they're guilty of doing. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to see obviously in 70 this is probably happening in the uh, late 50s, if I'm not mistaken, but in 70 the temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be leveled. And if you guys do your homework and watch that series, you'll see all about that. And you'll experience that. Anybody else have any? Uh, yeah, Steve. Uh, the commandment that Paul references not to curse the ruler of people. Yeah. Do you, do you think that that applies to us in the sense that, um, like, how would that apply to us? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I think I think if I could answer it best of my ability, that yeah, that extends to us. And in Romans thirteen, Paul kind of talks about that as well, and not slandering leaders, but praying for them. I think we got to be really careful. And um, you know, there's a certain news channel out there that encourages us to do this of one political party. Don't buy into that. Don't slander our leaders. Don't slander political parties. Don't call them idiots or stupid or you know, d demonically possessed. You don't know that, okay? Pray for them and respect them. It doesn't mean you have to agree wholesale with them. I mean, gosh, you'd be a weirdo if you did. It just means you don't slander them, okay? Don't do that. 
we need to be people who act justly. And I think that applies to us, yes, absolutely, that we don't slander leaders of our nation. As much as we want to, sometimes, we shouldn't. And it's very hard to do. Anybody else have a point to make or a question to ask? No, we're quiet today. Yeah, Ryan. Kind of a sidetrack. The guys who took a vow not to eat or drink anything Yeah, we're not supposed to do it. You can't do it. So yeah, Yeshua says don't do it at all. Yeah. The Torah says if you do it, you got to keep it. Yeah, so either they unjustly found a way out, mm-hmm. or they were secretly eating in their closets. Yeah. So, I'm sure they found a loophole somewhere. Yes. It doesn't seem like the, the upholding the Torah prohibition is but, on the forefront of their minds. Yeah, but they would have been definitely guilty before God because that's mm-hmm. kind of... Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, anybody else? Even if it was a guilty person, they made a valve out. And yeah, they didn't uphold it. They'd be guilty for that. Yeah, yeah Carol. Did I see your hand? Yeah. Yeah, you're correct. The Bible never never condones murder. Murder is the, is the killing of an innocent human being. Yeah. The Bible says you should not murder. There are times when we need to kill. But murder is never okay. Yeah, they were trying to murder Paul. Yeah, they're making a vow that they would murder him because he was an innocent human being. Yeah. How about people invading your home? Mm-hmm. You yeah, when they invade your home, they've lost their innocence and they're no longer an innocent human being. They're an in, they're a guilty human being, and you have every right to defend yourself in that situation. Yeah. Um, as my dad would say, uh, uh, put one in their thigh and lead them to the Lord. Don't do it. I don't know. Don't do it. All right, anybody else have any questions or comments? Or lead them to the Lord as they're bleeding out, he would say. It's an interesting, interesting tactic, isn't it? Oh, gosh. Anybody else have questions or comments? All right. No? Good deal. I hope you guys enjoyed the lesson on Acts 23. Do your homework this week, and we'll, we'll meet back next week. All right, let's say the blessing over the first.